Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, it's a pleasure to have in the beach shack someone my kids grew up with and I've watched for many, many years with my kids, the Yellow Wiggle from the Wiggles, Greg Page, and he's in to talk about how it all began with the Wiggles, his career before the Wiggles, and also when he had the heart attack and got revived on stage when they were doing the reunion tour. Now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Greg. Joining me today in the Beach Shack is Greg Page, better known as the Yellow Wiggle. Greg, great to have you in, mate. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, Hoppo. Good to be with you. Mate, well, we'll start back when uh, you grew up in Sydney, uh, North Meat. Tell us a bit about growing up in those days. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, back in those days, it was fairly carefree as a kid. You know, you could go out, ride your bike and not come back until the streetlights came on. You know, mum would say, yeah, go and, go and play and come back before dinner. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was great. I had a, a good set of friends that I grew up with, went to Northmead High School. And uh, yeah, I guess growing up, I was fortunate that my parents actually supported my musical endeavours as a kid, uh, sent me off for guitar lessons and yeah, just... Always had music in me. So in the school days, did you play in a band, you know, when you were young? Or it was more just learning the, the skill of, of playing the different instruments? Well, to be honest with you, I wasn't that studious as a guitar student. I should have practised a lot more, but I loved music. So I ended up becoming more of a vocalist than a guitarist. So I did play in school bands when I hit high school. I was really excited to go to high school because... You know, when, when I went to orientation day, uh, I saw that they had a school rock band and I thought, that's pretty cool. I want to be part of that rock band one day. And ultimately I was, I think it was, I think it was around year nine that I joined the school rock band, which was pretty cool. And uh, like I said, I wasn't much chop on guitar, <laughs> but the two girls that were the singers at that point in time, they were in year 12. So when they left, the band needed a singer and I thought, well, I'll have a go at singing because I just love singing and I um, guess that became more my forte. <laughs> and did you have a lot of lessons in the singing or if that was just something you found was a, just a natural gift? Look, I don't think I'm that great a singer, to be honest with you, but <laughs> I, I did have some lessons because I studied, well, sorry, I, I did a vocal performance as part of my Year 12 music exam for my HSC and my music teacher said, look, I think you should have some vocal lessons to support you through that. And so I did have some vocal lessons, but, yeah, again, I wasn't much... I, I found the way that I sing naturally to be much easier. And I think as it turns out from what people have said to me, my natural style of singing suited children's entertainment. And so I was very lucky in that sense. And yeah, look, I, I just love singing. There, there's plenty of singers out there who are much, much better than me. And, uh, you know, I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time in a number of ways. So back then, did you have 
idols you looked up to, like bands and singers that you, you know, go, geez, I'd love to be, like you said before, a rock star like these guys? Yeah, look, I think my first recollections of sort of idolising a singer was John Denver, to be honest with you, the folk singer. Because my, my parents listened to a lot of um, 2CH, middle of the road sort of music back in the day. And I was exposed to a lot of that sort of middle of the road stuff, country folk. So John Denver was uh, somebody who I was a big fan of. Uh, but then, of course, as I got older, I probably moved into groups like In Excess, you know, good old Aussie, Aussie band. So, yeah, I think for me, and it was a real thrill later in life to meet some of the guys from In Excess because as a teenager growing up watching them sort of set the stage as a pioneer of Australian rock music breaking into the, the US and doing the things that they did was a real thrill to meet them. So, yeah, I'd say that they were some of my idols. I noticed too when when I was having a look that at 16 you started going grey. That must have played a lot as a 16-year-old. Like that must have been tough for your self-esteem. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was tough. Um, yeah, I guess as a kid, you know, when you're still trying to find yourself, you know, 16, you're still pretty young, still trying to find for yourself and work out who you are and to think that, gee, going grey at the age of 16, yeah, that, that was pretty confronting. So, yeah, I used to spend you know, time in front of the mirror trying to pluck all the grey hairs out of the back of my head, you know, and ultimately then by the time I was 22, I started dyeing my hair because it was just becoming so sort of prominent and I thought, gee, who wants to be grey at 22? And, yeah, it did play on my self-confidence quite a bit. It was pretty pretty tough at that time. And do you think the music helped that or be able to go into the music side of things and... Oh, look, honestly, no, probably not. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I don't know that anything helped that. It was just something I had to deal with. And it probably plagued me for, you know, up until those years when yeah. you know, I started to dye, dye my hair, I sort of felt comfortable then to be myself because it was concealed and, yeah. you know, it probably didn't look that great dyeing it, but it kind of hit it for a while. Yeah. Mate, uh, the first band that you played in, what was that like? Oh, well, that was a group called Dead Giveaway. That was myself with some of my schoolmates. And, yeah, it was great fun. We did some great gigs. And I was very fortunate that at the church that I went to, we had a youth group, a youth fellowship group. And uh, the, the leaders there, the, the adults that were leading the, the group, when they organised school discos, they would let my band play at the school discos. And I was just saying to somebody the other day just how grateful I am for that fact that those leaders allowed us to play there because it gave us great experience in terms of being able to hone our craft and hone what we did and how we played. And, yeah, it was just one of those things that, you know, at the time you you understand the, the privilege that you have to be able to do it, but it's not until later in life and you look back and you think just what an impact those things that adults and the role that those adults have in your life plays on forming your life path down the track. And, mate, then uh, I've got a bit of a story too because you didn't, you went on to be involved with the, uh, the cockroaches. Mm -hmm. Now, you wouldn't believe it, my 18th birthday at the Lansdowne Hotel, we, we went there to watch the cockroaches play. Wow. So now I don't know what year that would have been, Hoppo, but I'm guessing you're a similar age to me, maybe a little bit older Very than me. Very, very similar age. Uh, how, yeah. How old are you, Hoppo? I'm uh, 54. 54. So four years older than me. So I would have been 14 at that time. So right. your 18th would have been probably around about just before the cockroaches became really big. 
But back in yeah. those days, you would remember that six nights a week you could go to any pub in Sydney and there'd be live music on. And the cockroaches would gig six nights a week. They had a, a really great career back in those days. But the live music scene here has changed so much in Australia, all over the country, but particularly in Sydney, it's changed so much. But they were the good old days, Hoppo, when you could go and celebrate your 18th, go to any pub you want and there'd be a yeah. band on. Yeah, 100%. And I remember all the years growing up, because obviously living around the eastern suburbs, the yeah, Selena's at the Coogee Bay Hotel, I think they would have had every band that ended up famous all played there. What a great gig that was, Selena's. Yeah, the, the big room there with that big stage. Yeah, they would have played host to many, many big acts over the years. And, yeah, living in that area, mate, you, you had it right on your doorstep. And then what part did you play then later on? You got involved with the cockroaches. What part did you play in that? Yeah, so like I said, when the cockroaches hit it big, I was still a teenager. I was at school, but I loved their music and I loved the energy that they had on stage and I bought their album and I ended up doing work experience at high school with the cockroaches because I figured by that stage in my life that not everybody is going to make it as a musician, no matter how much you want to be you know, a rock star or be famous or, you know, be good at what you do and what you love, not everybody's going to have the ability to do that. So I thought if I could work behind the scenes in music, that'd be fantastic. So when it came time to do work experience, I said to my careers counsellor, can I do it for a rock band? She said, yeah, of course, if they'll have you. So I reached out to their management, asked if I could do a week's work experience with them. And yep, lo and behold, they said yes. So that was a real thrill to do work experience with my one of the bands that I idolised at, at that point in time. And the guys who were on the road crew said, anytime you want to come and help out, you know, you're more than welcome to come and help out, which I did, of course, unpaid. And uh, that cemented a, a place there and a, a friendship with some of the guys in the band that led to the next chapter of my life, which, of course, was the formation of the Wiggles. Talking about the Wiggles, tell us about how that came about, because I know you went to university to study early childhood ed education but at that time did you know that it potentially then can combine with your music no look it, it came about i mean like i said i was wanting to be a, a roadie or be in the music industry and it was anthony field who was in the cockroaches that said to me look you can't be a roadie when you're 50 which i am now and he's right i wouldn't want to be <laughs> lugging gear up and downstairs and out of trucks and there's, there's not the, the gigs available anyway these days but he said to me what do you want to do what else would you want to do i said well look i wouldn't mind being a teacher and he said well if you want to do teaching early childhood teaching is where it's at come and check out the university so i went to the university that he was studying at which was um over at Waverley, actually talking about the eastern yeah. suburbs. So it was down in Henrietta Street in, in Waverley there. Yeah. And so ended up going there, learning about early childhood teaching. And it was during that time that Anthony said, let's try and write some songs for children. And at that point in time, no, we didn't know just how impactful it was going to be. But I guess we knew that what we'd learned at university about teaching and how children think, that if we were to put what we love about music combine it with what we love about teaching and, and sharing information and education with children, that it would be a good product. And we just had no idea just how big it was going to get though. So it was um, one of those things that it was really just incremental steps at a time. And then, you know, you look back and you kind of went, yeah, it went big, but it didn't kind of go big overnight. And that's probably what people don't realise, the hard work that goes in behind all this stuff that it all is great when it's, you know, up, up in lights and, and, and you're playing everywhere, but it had to have a start point. And was that difficult? How many years did it take before it, it really 
took off? Look, I guess we were fortunate in that in the very early days, we got a, a, a record deal back in the day, a record deal <laughs> with um, ABC Music, which ABC has long been regarded as the pinnacle of children's entertainment. You know, they've got play school, a whole lot of great quality stuff. So we were lucky in that sense, but it still took time to build it up. So we we worked really hard. So we would do 10 months a year touring in the early days. We'd do seven days a week sometimes, six days a week. We'd do three or four shows a day. So it was a lot of work. And it wasn't until probably 1997 or 98. So it took around about six years from 1991 through to 97, 98 before we were in a position where we were doing really well in Australia and we could look at going overseas. And it was really that leap to going overseas that made the difference for the, you know, the business side of things because that's when, you know, like anything, when you've got volume, you've got a big business. So going from Australia with 20 million people to the US with 300 million people, it was a big deal. And yeah, it's, but it took six or seven years to get to that point. So there was no real plan, as you said. It's a bit like Bondi Rescue. Bondi Rescue had no plan. It was only ever going to be an hour special and that was all it was ever going to be. And next thing you know, it just took off and, and, and the rest is history. Pretty much the same as what you're saying with the Wiggles. You were just you know, bit by bit and it just eventually just took off. And I think that's the beauty of, of the Wiggles and probably the same with Bondi Rescue, right? You do something because you love it and you enjoy it. You, you don't do it because you've got this grand master plan. Certainly lots of people do that and it works out well for them. But the success of the Wiggles was really born out of the love of what we did. And there was no expectation about it becoming big and huge and going international. It happened that way because we were passionate about what we did. We loved we loved our audience. We didn't take advantage of the audience in the sense of, you know, talking down to them and thinking that kids are beneath us, you know, kids are our equal, you know, we, we wanted to be teachers, we want to share education and information with them. And we did that through our music and our entertainment. So yeah, I think when you're genuine about what you do, that's when people buy into it, because they see the passion, the same with Bondi Rescue, they see that you guys are out there doing your job, because you want to be there, you know, you want to be there helping people. And that's what people love. And they buy into that. So you then wrote the songs, you start, you know, you guys were putting the songs together. And so where did the colours come up? Like have everyone in a yellow and a red and a blue and I think the other ones are purple. And, and then how did you find the other characters to come on board with you? Well, the colours was an interesting one because the colours came about on our second CD. So on our very first CD, we just had bright, colourful shirts. They were quite ugly, actually. Yeah. So we were glad to get rid of them <laughs> after the first CD. Our manager said, how about a different look for the second CD? And Anthony said, well, why don't we go with, you know, just black pants and then a solid colour on top, you know, bright primary colour. Jeff already had a purple shirt. Murray already had a red shirt. Anthony and I didn't have anything. So we went shopping and we, we went over to the old Grace Brothers there at Chatswood and we walked into the men's department because the photo shoot for that second album was the very next day and we didn't have anything. So we had to go shopping. So we went together and... Um, we both spotted a blue skivvy on the back wall of um, Grace Brothers and we both ran for it and history will tell you Anthony's a faster <laughs> runner than me because he got the blue skivvy. <laughs> but next to it was a yellow skivvy and that's the one that I took. So, yeah, that's how the colours came about. The other characters came about really just through thinking about what, you know, what the children want to know about and learn about. And we knew that kids love dinosaurs because dinosaurs are these 
you know, fantastical, mythical creatures that were once real. And I think that's why kids love dinosaurs because they know that they were real, but they're not around anymore. So they want to know more about it. So that's where Dorothy the dinosaur came from. Wags the dog, a lot of kids love dogs and a lot of kids have dogs as pets. So we decided to have a dog as part of the cast. Henry the octopus came about because um, the drummer from the cockroaches actually was doing some uh, work with us as a session musician. And his name was Tony Henry. And he had this idea of this character, this octopus character that could play eight drums at one time. And we said, well, look, we're never going to be able to do that because we just can't build a costume with eight arms and drums. Uh, but we said, what we can do is we can have a character called Henry the Octopus. So Tony Henry gets to live on in that form in, in the Wiggles. And then Captain Feathersword, again, this, this notion of pirates, that kids love pirates, but often, you know, they're scary with a sword. So we thought, how can we make a friendly pirate? We thought, what better way than to have a pirate with a feather for a sword that tickles people and has a lot of fun. So that's where all the characters came from. So now in hindsight, looking back, it just all just fell into place, didn't it? It was just from, it must amaze you now looking back of that whole, where it started. It does because none of us at the time were businessmen. None, none of us were in this to build a business and we didn't know how to build a business. We had to learn all that along the way. And as you say, everything just kind of had to fall into place because things would change. We didn't have this massive business plan that we tried to adhere to. We were very adaptable and we learned how to pivot long before COVID. So we had many, many challenges that were thrown our way. And that was part of the adventure that we loved with the Wiggles because it, and I guess even today, it's funny now that I'm not involved in the business of the Wiggles, I'm on the outside of it, but I can look, look in and I can see ways that they're probably still adapting and changing because things don't always go to plan or, you know, your thought processes change over time and you've got to change things retrospectively. Yeah, so it's been a very interesting journey. And also you've changed, you know, obviously that will touch on the reason why you moved out of the Wiggles, but how did they then get the new characters, you know, the basically it's the same character but just a, a different person in the yellow, the yellow Wiggle, the blue Wiggle. Was there any process there or was that just something that sort of fell into place again? Well, I think, yeah, that, that was an interesting time because when I did leave, I think the question was posed, well, what does the replacement do? Do they step into the yellow skivvy or do they become a new colour? And I think the consensus of, of opinion was that the four colours were the Wiggles and, and the person in that skivvy could change. And I think that's what's been proven now over time. So there was me, there was Sam, there was Emma, there's now Sahai in the yellow skivvy. So the colours stay the same and the people coming in and out of those colours can change. And I think that's really important because it's always difficult when you have that dilemma of how do you replace a well-known face behind a brand? And the thing with the Wiggles is that you, you can replace the face but not the colour, and it's that colour that stays the same and provides that consistency. Mate, now, did you find the songs would relate to the kids like they did so well? Look, we we didn't know. We had to do a bit of, um, you know, track testing with the kids and, and make sure that they would work. But I think because we had studied early childhood psychology, 
and what what would appeal to children, we were fairly confident about it without wanting to sound arrogant. But, oh, look, we had some songs that didn't work and didn't hit as well, right? So there's a lot of misses, but we had some hits and, you know, some of the hits that guys are still playing today, you know, Hot Potato, Fruit Salad, Yummy Yummy, Monkey Dance, Can You Point Your Fingers and Do The Twist? So there's a lot of songs that have stood the test of time over 30-something years now, which is quite incredible. So we were very, very fortunate that we had the we had the brains together and the opportune time to be able to create the wiggles and do as well with it as what we did. And as you said, there's a lot of people listening would think that every song you put out were the, were the only songs and they were successful. They don't hear about the, oh, mate, the ones that don't make it. <laughs> mate, I think in the time that I was with the wiggles, I think we did maybe 17 to 24 studio albums, a lot of albums, right? So that's a lot of songs. So, yeah, there's a lot of songs on there that didn't take, and probably <laughs> rightfully so. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Now, mate, we'll go back to when you did, you had a bit of an illness years ago. So let's start with that there and, and we'll work our way through. Yeah, so 2006, I think it was, it might have been the late 2005, I actually had a couple of hernias that I had to have dealt with. And so I took some time off from the wiggles and, and came back from that. But shortly after I'd had those hernias repaired, I started to just feel really unwell. And it was towards the end of 2006, we were in New York City, actually, and I, I collapsed Oh no, I actually didn't collapse there in New York. I felt really unwell and I laid down backstage and I slept for three hours and I had to miss a show because I was just so exhausted. I slept right through a show. It wasn't long after that then that I did collapse backstage. I was walking back to the dressing room and just collapsed. And then I think the next day I collapsed again. So I left the tour and came back home to try and find out what was going wrong. And at the time I thought it might've been to do with those hernias that I'd had repaired that I hadn't let myself heal properly from those, ended up being this thing called orthostatic intolerance, which means the body's inability to stay in an upright standing or static position. Essentially, the blood would pool in my legs and not pump back up to my heart and up to my brain. So without the blood getting to your brain, you black out because you can't stand up. So that's what it was. Now, the process was that it took a while to get that diagnosis. They tested for a lot of things. They tested my heart, they tested my brain, they tested a number of things. But in that time, uh, there was a lot of things going on in the Wiggles world at that point in time. And the decision had to be made that I, I needed to leave the group to try and focus on my health. And then they could go and, and focus on what they needed to do. And look, ultimately it was a tough decision to make and the I guess the repercussions for me personally move, trying to move on from that were quite difficult, but it was the right decision at the time. And I'm, you know, retrospectively, I'm, I'm glad I made that decision because everything happens for a reason. And um, yeah, I, I dealt with that. I'm you know, pushed through that, that condition. And um, yeah, it was interesting learning about this thing I'd never heard of because thinking back to my high school days, I can remember standing up at school assemblies and feeling really unwell. And a lot of people will probably feel unwell if you stand up for a long period of time, you've got to sit down. But for me, it got really bad in that late 2006 period. And my body had just become so depleted of um, salt. And so your body needs salt to be able to retain fluid. And my body wasn't retaining fluid, so I became very dehydrated. And when you're dehydrated, you can't stand up for long periods of time, you end up collapsing. And it would have been tough because on tours, you're on the go all the time. You know, there's not much time to 
no downtime really when you're on tour. No, it was very hard and doing a very physical show that the Wiggles is. So for anybody who's ever seen a Wiggles show live, they see the sweat, you know, just pouring out of us because it is a very physically active show. And, you know, we would always have Gatorade. So I'd drink, drink plenty of Gatorade and water. But like I said, because my body didn't retain the salt and then the fluid, I'd drink all that stuff and I'd just get rid of it and I was not staying hydrated. So, yeah, it became very problematic. And then you did have, you know, come back here and there as the years went on. And, yeah, how was that to, after being out of it and then coming back in every now and again? Was that uh, like... Well, it was very interesting because the guys asked me to go back in 2012 as the Yellow Wiggle for eight months because they knew that Sam wasn't going to be renewing his contract in that year in 2012, so they needed somebody to be the Yellow Wiggle. And they thought that, well, a couple of things, I think they thought it would be good to have me come back and transition to a new Yellow Wiggle. But also for me personally, it was good to go back and do some more shows with the guys because when I left that tour in America to come back home and find out what was going on in 2006, I never knew that the last show that I did was going to be my last show with the Wiggles. So for me, the ability to go back in 2012 was good because it gave me that closure that I wanted to have. And through that year, Murray and Jeff actually decided to retire at the end of 2012 as well. So I stayed on till the end of 2012 and we did our final show together as the original Wiggles, which was great. But then, yeah, subsequently to that, we've done what we call the OG Wiggles shows. So we did about four of those as fundraisers. We supported Soldier On. We supported a number of different um, charitable causes. And most notably, after the bushfires in 2019 and 2020, we got together and did fundraiser for Red Cross and Wires. And that's the, um, the fundraiser where things went pretty wrong for me that night in January 2020. But it, it was great to be able to be together with the guys. And we still do some shows every now and then. And to be on stage with the guys, it's that history. 30 years of doing what we've done together. Uh, when we get back on stage together, it's just like riding a bike and we've got all the same old gags that come out again. And, yeah, we have a great <laughs> lot of fun. So back when you did have to leave, and as you said, you didn't know that was going to be your last one with the Wiggles. A lot of, and I've interviewed a lot of sports people and they have the same problem. It's going from an elite sportsman, it's ended, it's all over, and now what do I do? Did you have any times there in that period that, geez, I'm struggling a bit here because I really have been so focused on the Wiggles? Yeah, look, I think at the time I probably didn't realise it, but looking back on that period of time, I can see that I did struggle. I've always been a very positive sort of person and I always try to look at the positive side of things. And so I think during that time I was so focused on just trying to be positive about things and didn't really take the time to reflect on perhaps the effect that it was having on me. But looking back, you can sort of look back on your life and think, okay, well, in that period of my life there, I probably wasn't functioning at as high a level as I would have liked to have been and could have been. And I think that's a good lesson for anyone at any point of time in their life to think, okay, well, just take a step back and have a look at what's going on. Am I okay? Am I doing the best that I can be doing? And I think the ability to look back on that is good. The ability to do it at the right time in your life is even better. Now, mate, go back to the, um, the the 2020 as you're talking about and, and you collapsed on stage. Did you get – was it a feeling like when you are saying earlier that oh, I was feeling a bit sick because I'm standing up? Was that the original feeling? No, there wasn't any 
as far as I can remember, through that show, I felt okay. I felt like a normal right. Wiggles show. And there's plenty of times when at the end of a Wiggles show, I'm exhausted and I just feel like I just want to lie down. So when I went to the side of the stage at the end of that show, I actually bent down to grab a drink because I was so um, thirsty. And that's when I collapsed. And at that point in time, I felt fine. But I was having a massive heart attack at that point in time. And I went into cardiac arrest. But it was so sudden that I didn't really know what was going on. Surviving it and looking back, I can remember the feeling of it. And yeah, I remember feeling really sick at that point in time. And I can actually remember vomiting just before I passed out. And yeah, but it, there was nothing before it that gave me any warning whatsoever. Whether because some of the feelings or those, yeah, some of those unwell feelings might have been masked by the fact I was doing a show, I don't know. But there, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. And that's the scary thing. And then you did obviously stop breathing. Pulse stopped, and then guys, people there had to then start CPR. Yeah. Yeah, so look, very fortunately for me, people recognised that I wasn't breathing. They, they looked at me and saw that I was grey and my lips were blue and I thought, well, that's not normal. So I called the ambulance, which is the right thing to do, called triple zero straight away. And then if somebody's not breathing, yep, start CPR, and they did, thankfully. And the third thing of luck for me, the third stroke of luck, uh, was that they had a defib or AED at the venue where I was performing and they got that to me within 10 minutes and they got the pads on and two shocks from the defib and I was back again. So, yeah, extremely lucky. And that's the amazing thing. And, and I've been saying for, to people for a long, long time, I remember 1997 was the first defibrillator we got at Bondi Beach and, and we were trained in, in defibrillator. And 25 years prior- ago. 25 years ago was the first one we got. There was these big orange cases that, you know, probably similar to the when the mobile phone came, it was like a brick and then finally it's, it's come down to, to smaller. But I'll never forget that when we trained in that and there was always a fear of using a defibrillator. But as the years go on, and as you know now, it's easier to use a defibrillator than probably doing the, the CPR. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I reckon that's 100% correct. And... You know, one of the main messages that I try to get out there now is that, you know, anyone can use an AED defibrillator. You don't have to be trained. You don't have to be qualified. It is so simple to use. And like the people that used it for me, even though they were both a doctor and a nurse, they'd never used one of these ones before because they're used to using the hospital grade or medical grade defibrillators. But these AEDs, they're made for anybody to use in the public. And so... They are pretty much foolproof. If you can turn the device on, find the power button and turn it on or open up the case and it starts talking to you, listen to the instructions, follow the instructions and you can potentially save a life, which is just a huge thing to be able to do. And our success rate going back prior to 97, you'd just be doing CPR, wait for the ambulance to come to give them the, you know, the adrenaline and, and all the drugs to, to try and get them, get them back. And I noticed, though, since the defibrillators came along, our success rate was so much better. And even to today, I think, you know, touch wood, 15, 20 years, we've got everyone, pretty much everyone back. Yeah, it's something that's an amazing thing and, and what you're doing. But the, the thing for me that, that's tough is it takes someone like yourself in, in, a, in a high profile to then push it and then it gets a bit of momentum. Whereas I think this should be, and I think you're pushing this way, 
it should be a, a regulation where like a, a fire hydrant needs to be in, in areas. It should be in every, you know, building, shopping centre, sports ground, wherever, wherever. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Look, I am all for regulation on this, but I'm also for people just doing it because it's the right thing to do. I'd like to think that people would do it without having to be told to do it, and that's why I'm really pushing Heart of the Nation. It's a, a charity that I've started to raise this awareness. Um, South Australia last week just passed legislation about AEDs making them mandatory. They're the first state in Australia to do this. Now, Hoppo, as you say, 25 years ago, you got these devices. We have known about these devices for that long, and it's taken this long to get them out there in the community, proliferated, and this level of awareness. We've still got a way to go with awareness, but 25 years, imagine the lives that could have been saved in that time frame, right? Now, I've only been in this space two and a half years, and I've been having discussions with political leaders and you know politicians on state and federal level, and the push, yeah, I will say it's pushback, because what these politicians tend to focus on is prevention. Prevention is great. I would love to prevent people dropping dead and needing to be resuscitated, but the fact is at the moment, we are not succeeding in that. Whether it's through drowning, whether it's through blunt force trauma, whether it's through you know, cardiac disease that's not detected, like in my case, people are still going to drop dead and need to be resuscitated by members of the community because as you've identified, Hoppo, 25 years ago, you were waiting for ambulances to arrive and administer adrenaline and all sorts of drugs that we don't have access to as bystanders. What we do have access to is the ability to do CPR and an AED if it's available. And those two things can make a massive difference to somebody's chance of survival because ambulances today are still taking up to 20 minutes to arrive in some cases of cardiac yeah. arrest and it's too long. Yeah, 100%. And it's very similar to water safety. We do all the preventative messaging, you know, swim between the flags, don't drink alcohol and go on the water, you know, go to the beach with a friend. Like all those things are great preventative messaging, but there's nothing, and that's why I've started Float to Survive, is float when you're in any sort of danger because there's no message to say when you're in that situation in the water, what do I do now? Yep. That, that's right, mate. And I think that's that's a great analogy you've made because water safety, there's so many prevention strategies and messaging out there, so, so much messaging out there. But tragedies still happen, right, for a whole range of reasons, whether it's because people don't think they're going to be at risk, whether it's because they don't know the risks. It's, it's a great analogy to heart health and the fact that we cannot prevent everybody dropping dead. And when we have bystanders that can step in and play that role and provide those links in the chain of survival, we will see more people surviving, more people going home to their loved ones. And just talking about water safety, one message I would love to get out to families over this summer, please educate your children not to play that game where you hold your breath underwater and see how long you can do it for. I've heard stories of so many kids that do that and it leads to either drowning or it can cause a cardiac arrest underwater, which can, of course, also lead to drowning. Please, parents, tell your kids, do not see how long you can hold your breath underwater. There is nothing to be gained from that, nothing to be gained, only potential disaster. Yeah, mate, great, great advice. And you hear about that all the time. And uh, it's just something, you know, as you said, you have a heart attack in the water, you've, 
yeah, you're swallowing water as well as having the heart attack. It's very, very difficult to get someone back from that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any other ways now you're, you're pushing for the, the defibrillator? You know, obviously, I think, as you said, anyone could just drop dead in front of you. But if there's a defibrillator close by, an AED, you can really save someone's life. And I've noticed the ones we get on so, because obviously at the beach, if they've dropped right near us, over the years, out of all the resuscitations I've done, the ones I've got the defib on within a minute, two minutes, they actually then wake up once you get them back to life. They potentially can wake up. A lot are still unconscious and, and go off to hospital, and obviously everybody goes to hospital. But it's amazing what this technology can do. Mate, this is the thing, right? And I'm glad you're talking about this because you do have this first-hand experience. A lot of paramedics have this first-hand experience too. But what I find is that paramedics aren't necessarily as free to speak about this because mm. there's the hierarchy involved. Now, this shouldn't be a political issue. We are talking about saving lives, right? And it's very, very simple. No, none of us not you, not me, not anybody in this space is doing this to deride or derogate paramedics because they do an incredible job and we need them to be doing their job. The problem is that they need us to be doing a job in between a person collapsing and them arriving. We can only do that job if we have the ability to do CPR and have access to an AED because as you say, Hoppo, and research from all over the world supports what you're saying as well. Get an AED on somebody within the first three to five minutes and you will see a 70% survival rate in most cases of cardiac arrest. Overall survival from cardiac arrest is 10%. Now, if we can get more AEDs in the community, and in particular, I'm pushing for getting more in residential areas because up to 80% of cardiac arrests occur in the home. But when you're at home, that's probably where you're furthest away from your nearest AED. You're at the beach, there's one nearby. You're at the club, there's one nearby. You're at the shops, there's one nearby. Generally, get them closer to people's homes and we'll see a, a marked increase in survival rates because that's where the majority of cardiac arrests are occurring. But you're absolutely right. Get them on people within the first minute to two minutes yeah. and you'll see many, many more survivors. Yeah. Well said, Hoppo. Yeah, no, 100%. It's, it's, and as the paramedics say... I mean, the, and as you have said, that first 10 minutes, because an ambulance, you could be waiting 10 minutes, 20 minutes. You know, it's not the ambulance's fault, but their success rate is going to be less because they're coming in later. No different to us at the beach. If we were coming in 10, 20 minutes after they'd had a heart attack, we'd be, we wouldn't get them back either. No, that's right, because with cardiac arrest, the heart muscle uh, or the heart is an electrical malfunction. And that electrical malfunction doesn't stay forever. It deteriorates and it becomes asystole. Whilst there's that electrical malfunction going on, that's when the defib can kick in and shock the heart and bring the person back. Once that deteriorates and becomes asystole, when there's no electrical activity going on in the heart whatsoever, that's when the paramedics have to work really hard with the adrenaline and other drugs to try and kickstart the heart again. And that's when they have the least chance of success. So if you can get an AED on somebody while there's still that electrical activity going on inside the heart, that's when that AED has the greatest chance of working. So in that first one to two minutes, three, maybe five, you'll see upwards of 50% chance of survival. And tell us how people can get in contact with you, help out with Heart of the Nation and 
And, and where you're going with all that, uh, with the charity? Yeah, so look, if you've got an AED at your workplace, at your business, your shop, your gym, whatever it might be, you can register your AED with Heart of the Nation. And when you do, we'll send you out these bright yellow stickers to put on the front door or window of your business so people know there's an AED inside. Because if you've got an AED inside and somebody collapses outside, they might not know there's an AED inside and that could save somebody's life. So that's one thing you can do, sign up and register, that's free. We also have an app you can download, the Heart of the Nation app. That will show you the location of AEDs that are registered to Heart of the Nation around Australia. There's about six and a half thousand locations there at the moment. Also on the app, you can sign up to become an alerter and a responder. Now that's free to do, but if you sign up, uh, we get you to provide your details, but show um, your driver's license with your face so that we can match your face to your license. That's a security measure, we have to do that so we know who's alerting and who's responding to incidents. Because when you do that, when you're at home, when you're at the shops, you can hit a button on the app that says alert incident and that'll call triple zero, but it will also alert nearby responders that you need help. They can grab the nearest AED that they find on the app and they can bring it to you while you stay and do CPR. So that's two things that we're doing with Heart of the Nation. We're doing a lot of other stuff as well, but there are two ways that anybody can get involved. You know, register your AED, talk to your boss if you've got an AED at work, tell them to register, download the app and become an alerter or responder. Yeah, it's a great initiative. That's um, really, really something that, you know, I haven't even thought of to, to have that uh, with the apps and, and do it that way. So that's uh, that's really good. It's similar to, I'd like to have in, in schools, in your high schools, you know, there should be a whole subject on, you know, the water safety side in conjunction with learning CPR, you know, learning first aid, learning spinal injuries as well, because you can have that at home uh, or, or somewhere, car accidents, uh, the whole range. There's a big package there. You can put it all together. And once you come out of school, yeah, everyone's already trained in, in this area. Yeah, look, I, I'm 100% for that. So Heart of the Nation has been doing some work with the Australian Resuscitation Council and the Heart Foundation and Ambulance Victoria. We're actually doing a trial of basic life support skills in, in schools in Victoria, and that's just started this month. So it'll be good to see how that goes, but hopefully we'll be able to replicate that around Australia yeah. because teaching kids is the best way to get this information into their heads and have it become like muscle memory, right? You would know about muscle memory. When you yeah. don't have to think about something because it's, it's ingrained in your psyche, it, the response just becomes natural. You don't have to think about it. And that will break down some of those barriers for people where they think, well, I don't know what to do. Should I do this? Am I going to hurt them? Can I do this? Should I not do this? What's going to happen if I do this wrong? If they know what to do, they'll just kick into action and they'll potentially save a life. Yeah, 100%. And they're definitely, uh, I think now we're starting to move in the right direction with all the uh, the, the DFIB, you know, the AEDs and and getting people trained. And, and the, I think taking away the fear factor because people think if they put the pads on, geez, if I press it, they could be alive and I'll press it. But you can press the button a thousand times. It's not it's not going to shock you unless it can identify no, uh, no heartbeat. That's right. It, it won't shock unless you need to be shocked, unless the patient needs to be shocked. And you won't be hurt as a responder if you stand clear when the, the AED says to stand clear. So they're very, very safe to use. And one big thing that I learned after my cardiac arrest, which I didn't know beforehand, is that 
any attempt at resuscitation is better than no attempt. You can't make the patient worse. When somebody's not responding and not breathing, the only way for them is down. Unless somebody steps in and does something, you give them a chance. So doing something's better than doing nothing. That's right. You'll often hear, you know, the ones I've done, you'll hear ribs breaking, cracking, and, you know, that's just a part of CPR, but you've got to look after the airway and, you know, trying to get the uh, the heart going again. So that's your, your main thing. That's it. A question on when, when you were, after you had the heart attack, did you, one, already know CPR? Two, was, did you know anything about the AEDs? No, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know CPR, and I didn't know anything about AEDs. I guess I'd heard of them, but I guess I thought, like a lot of people, that they are for medically trained people. And it wasn't until after my cardiac arrest that I went into my local Bunnings and I saw one on the wall there. And naively, I thought they must have put that in recently. And I asked the girl how long it had been there. She said it's been there for eighteen months. And I thought, why have I never seen that before? And I realised that I had seen it before, but I didn't know that it was an AED. I thought it was a first aid cabinet. So that's where, you know, I came up with the idea of changing the sign for an AED to, uh, don't have one, actually I do have one here with me. Instead of a green and white sign on a white cabinet, have a bright yellow sign on a white cabinet yep. so it stands out and is different to first aid. Um, because, yep. you know, there's a lot of green and white signage in places like shops airports, hotels, a lot of places out in public, yep. green and white signs everywhere. Having a bright yellow sign for an AED will easily distinguish it from anything else and hopefully will make people notice it more often. Yeah, it's, I think that's the the big point, I think, is just making people aware and then going out and getting the training. Because so I know a lot of companies have then got the defibrillators, but someone might leave the company and go somewhere else, but they were the one that was trained in using AED. Then suddenly there's no one in the company that can actually use the AED. Yeah, look, my, so my biggest point on that is that the training should be this. You don't need to be trained. That's the yep. training, right? So everybody understands that regardless of who is the first aid officer or who is the, the safety warden, if they're not there, if you can't find them, if they're the person that goes down, anybody else can step in and use it and save a life. So for me, that's the biggest thing. Get out there that we don't need to be trained in how to use one. Training will give you more confidence, which I'm all for that. But at the very base level, every person needs to know that you don't have to be trained. If you're the only person there and there's an AED on the wall, grab it and use it because you can. Yep. Yep. Great advice. That's great advice, mate. Well, Greg, it's, it's been great having a chat. I, I, I love it. I, I, I've, you know, my kids grew up with the Wiggles. It was um, that I think I, I must have watched it a million times oh. over and over and over. And back in back in the day when they were young, they're older now. They're twenty four and twenty. So, uh, but they were uh, they loved the Wiggles, mate. Uh, I do a, a a segment five fun facts at the end. So I'm going to uh, put you on the spot, throw a few questions at you, and see how uh, how you go. Your favourite childhood memory. My favourite childhood memory would probably be getting my first guitar. I think it was age six or it might have been five, five years old, getting it at Christmas time. That, that was a big moment for me. Who's the messiest person you know? Well, it could be me. Uh, you'll notice I've got this backdrop <laughs> up here because my office behind me is quite messy. So it could well be me. If not me, then it could be, well, back in the day of touring, it could have been Anthony Field back then <laughs> in Blue Wiggle. 
Mate, what's a body part you wouldn't mind losing? Uh, like a lot of middle-aged men, I'd probably say my gut. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't mind losing that. Mate, favourite sport? Uh, cricket, definitely cricket. I love cricket, yeah. I've played a lot of cricket over the years and I, I still try and play every now and then, but uh, haven't had much time recently. So the last time I went out to bat, I got a duck, two, two ball duck, and that wasn't very um, <laughs> wasn't very good for the self-esteem. <laughs> But if you're a DJ, what would your DJ name be? DJ. I, I think if I was a DJ, I'd be Yellow, Y-L-O, Yellow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great answers. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure. It's, uh, you know, the Yellow Wiggle will go on forever. You're the original Yellow Wiggle, so... Mate, it's great having you in the beach shack and having a chat. Thanks for having me, Hoppo. It's been a real pleasure. We'll have to have a coffee one day. Mate, we'll catch up for a coffee and we'll uh, talk some AED and, and, and see what we can do and uh, keep pushing it out there. And, you know, it's obviously a passion of mine as well because I, I work so close with him as a lifeguard. Yeah, well, let's combine forces, mate. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack for Beach Banner, we've got Andy Mole. He's come back in to talk about something that uh, we experienced together way back in 2013. It was uh, quite a good trip. Andy, do you remember that one? I sure do, Hoppo. I'll, uh, we're waiting for the next one to happen, though, aren't we, at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had one of them every year. It'd be great. It would but, be awesome. <laughs> uh, I remember I had to find a couple of people and I got yourself and Drew because we need to train some people over there to be lifeguards, you know, slash security. They were doing a bit of everything in, in yeah. the Maldives called Amelia uh, Fushi. So what a trip that was. So how did you feel when I rang you and said, we're going to go and do this trip? Well, I had no hesitation in saying uh, yes to that one, I reckon, Hopper. Yeah, it was a great experience hey, when I think back at it and, and where we ended up and this resort that was like, you know, $5,000 a night to stay at and, and the range of people that we had to train. And as you said before, you touched on before, we had security guards, we had, you know, hotel staff, we had carers and everything. And well, I suppose one of the biggest things we found, the challenge we found between the three of us was the language barrier. <laughs> trying, to, trying to teach these guys some basic lifeguarding skills but we, we did great we, we adapted to it and, and it was so much fun getting them all involved and um, I really got a lot out of that trip it was, it was awesome yeah some really strange some awesome, awesome place to be because remember we were staying on another island because where we trained them was a construction site yeah, yeah. I remember walking over that construction site too and if I remember rightly it was absolutely pissing name with rain for a majority of the time we were there. We are in this beautiful sunny place and, and it rained the whole time we were there pretty much. But yeah, I remember it being a building site and, and some of the places they sent us, you know, took us around were just phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And um, yeah, I clearly remember, um, I kind of remember more the uh, the partying we did when we went back to where we were staying was the, was the best part of the trip too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we lived it up. They said, go and order whatever you want, drinks, food. <laughs> 
They were pretty successful at that. I think uh, what was the the bill at the end of that was about ten grand. I think. I think so. Yeah. So we gave <laughs> it a pretty good dent, didn't we? I tell you that right. Mate. It, was, it was pretty good. Uh, the old shushka pipes and everything were going on. Great. But uh, I just remember getting on the boat every morning, and I think you did a lot of the PI, if I remember, Hopper. I think me and Drew did more of the training, if I recall. Yeah, but you, you, you went to walk quite a few times on that trip. <laughs> Yeah, you guys did all the work. I just did the uh, the drinking, eating, and just uh, and talking it up. Exactly right. Yeah, we had the odd, the odd photo shoot. That was about it. But yeah, yeah. I think it was super fun. I, I had a great time over there. And and I think um, when you're training people, you know, in like Sri Lanka and those, you know, I wouldn't say third world countries, but you know, less developed countries as such, they get such joy out of learning new skills. And and I think that was. You know, to see their smile on their face. And some of them, as you know, when we first turned up, mate, they couldn't even swim swim a length of the pool. So not only were we training them, we were actually teaching them how to swim, you know. Float and survive, basically, as you say, really. But, uh, yeah, I think we had them in the pool a few times and then we got them out in the ocean. And, um, yeah, and I clearly remember the water quality was just phenomenal. The Maldives, if, if, if anyone else has not been there, it's definitely a place to go to. Yeah, I remember the, it was a beautiful pool. The beach was was beautiful and surrounded by water. And I reckon the majority of the workers couldn't uh, just wouldn't be able to swim. No, no, exactly right. Like, and I remember going around on a stand-up paddleboard with Drew. We, we pretty much paddled all around the island, stuffing it at several bars as we went around on, on a stand-up <laughs> paddleboard, getting a few cocktails on the way. But, uh, but yeah, I remember it being a, a beautiful resort. And um, and it's amazing uh, uh, the, the people that were working there, you know, where they were all coming in from every single day, you know, to, to work there. Um, and as you know, the Maldives are made up of hundreds of islands, and that was just one island of, of many and, and, and all the resorts that are out there as well. Yeah. I remember the, one of the guys saying the islands stretch from equivalent of Cairns to Tasmania, like in Australia. That's how far they the islands go. So it was amazing. I didn't realise it was that uh, that big. But yeah, what about big. getting off the boat? You wouldn't want to be in OHS because I remember one guy had a drill drilling the wharf. <laughs> Yes, I so well, remember that, yes. Well, his electrical cord went through the water and then up into the power box. And then we and we had to get in the water with him with these rescue tubes and do these rescues. All I'm seeing is power lines everywhere. I just go, you see that typical workplace health and safety word site and you just go, what is wrong with this picture? Everything over there. Um, oh. Yeah, I clearly remember that, just it being an absolute building site while we were there. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, um, I think we need to go and revisit that that resort now just to see how well those staff are going. What do you reckon, Hop? Yeah, yeah, I think we should re- re- revisit it and do some more training over there. I reckon it would be perfect. Definitely. <laughs> and I remember, I did one thing I remember as well was uh, I piled on with all the surfboards, thinking we were going to this uh, location where there was going to be waves, and I remember it being flat. <laughs> <laughs> so we used the boards as a trading device the whole time we were there. That was about it. <laughs> That's right, because there's a few islands that have the waves, and then we're yeah, yeah. we're further down. I think we we get the seaplane. We got a boat. We got a boat from. Yeah, we did. Sort of we did a, a. Did we do it? This I'm trying to think whether we did the seaplane. I don't think it was. It was another small plane and another boat ride. And yeah. I remember just being on boats a lot yeah. on that yeah. trip. Yeah, it's a lot of boat trip. <laughs> a lot of boat trips. <laughs> right, Andy, mate, it's great having you at the beach shack, and uh, I'll catch up with you down the beach soon. No worries, I'll have a good one, mate. Now it's time. To have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. 
This week's letter in the mailbag is from Karina and she lives in the western suburbs of Sydney. Her question is, are you going to be working on Christmas Day down at Bondi Beach? Well, Karina, yes, the way the roster's fallen, I'm working Christmas Day, so I'll be down there Christmas Eve and Christmas Day that whole weekend. Uh, looks like it may be busy at this stage. The temperatures are looking around the yeah, 26 to, to 28 degrees, so should be a few people around. There's not as many backpackers uh, in this year as we ha- have had in previous years, uh, but there are still a few that have arrived. So looking forward to it. I mean, I've done majority of my years working Christmas Day at Bondi Beach over my 31 years, and there's only been a few years that I've actually had off on Christmas Day, so we generally celebrate our Christmas and family the week leading into Christmas Day. So nothing's changed. I'll spend my day down at Bondi with all the lifeguards uh, as usual and celebrate Christmas. So I hope everybody has a great Christmas and uh, I'll catch you all again next year as we're going to have a little bit of a break over Christmas and the new year and we will be back around mid-January. So until then, catch you all soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.